Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, fans of science fiction and fantasy. You've come to the right place if you want to hear a conversation about writing, creativity, and the latest from some of the greatest writers publishing today. I'm Rob Wolf, and I'm honored to be your host because, honestly, this is pretty fun. But before we start, uh, you can help more people join the fun if you'll go to our new books in science fiction and fantasy Facebook page and click like. And you can also feel free to leave a suggestion or two for authors you'd like to hear interviewed. And um, I encourage you also to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever great podcasts are available these days. And leave a nice review. Uh, That wouldn't hurt either. So now let's get to what we're really here for, which is to speak with an author and pick his brains. And today, (laughs) those brains belong to Brian Staveley, author of The Emperor's Blades, the first in a planned trilogy. Thanks for taking the time out from doing whatever it is you've been doing up there in Vermont today to, to speak with me. Just just trying to finish the third book, so it's nice to take a little break. Wow, the third book. Okay, so maybe we can, uh, after we talk about the first, we, we can get a little preview of the second and, and maybe even a hint about the third. Sure, sure, absolutely. You can You can tell me what you want to see in the third book. Oh, good. Oh, can we, can I, can suggest? I'm I'm taking suggestions, you know, more monsters, fewer monsters, some pirates, no pirates, you know, whatever it is. That's just lay it on me. Can a monster be named after me? I think I've always wanted that. Sure. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you have, you have kind of a, a, you know, a bestial last name as it is. So, um, you know, some kind of the twisted version of a wolf might not be bad. Yeah, that's good. All right. I'll take that. (laughs) Uh, so, so let's start with the emperor's blades. It's a, uh, it's an epic fantasy novel that, that focuses on the challenges of three royal siblings whose stories really begin following the wake, uh, following the murder of their father, who's the emperor. And I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about your ambitions here. You know, when you set out to write this, did you know? I mean, it seems so ambitious to me to 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 write a book with such sweeping scope where you're really creating. um, I mean, you've got religions in here and forms of combat and new histories. And um, I guess all books create a new world, right? Sure. But an epic fantasy, a fantasy world requires, it seems to me, maybe, and, and we can discuss this, it seems to me to like have a higher bar, like you have to create and invent more. And I just wondered when you set out, were you like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to create this? Or did it, was it, did you start out with perhaps a smaller idea and it, and it slowly grow? No, no, it was, it was quite the opposite, actually. I started out with an enormous idea and, um, and pared it down, uh, I'd been, you know, I've read fantasy my whole life, um, and especially when I was younger, I read it just voraciously. I'd sit down and read a book over the course of a Sunday or something. And uh, until recently, I was teaching high school, and I was teaching um, ancient world history and comparative religion and philosophy, and that those subjects are all just treasure troves 
for somebody who is interested in fantasy, uh, especially for somebody who's interested in writing fantasy, because I would come across historical characters or battles or political situations or incidents that I thought were exciting or interesting or intriguing. And because I had this love for an interest in fantasy, I would think, oh, you could use that in a fantasy novel. You could twist it a little bit or do this with it. Um, and so for years, I was teaching these courses and just compiling things that I thought would be would be awesome um, in a fantasy novel. And when it when I decided to actually do it, I wanted to, to put them all in. And that, that so I, when I pitched the series to Tor, um, which is my publisher now, I pitched. I said, "Well, what about seven books? I think seven books is a nice long, a nice, a nice size for a series." And my editor, Marco Palmieri, this was our our first phone conversation where I think he was just trying to determine okay, is this guy sane? Can he, can he really do it? And he, he was quite taken aback by that. And he said, no, there's no, there's no way on earth we're going to give you a seven-book series. We you, we've seen the first book, but you're, you're an unproven quantity, so why don't we shoot for three? And I said, because I was just so delighted to be talking to an editor from Tor, I said, three sounds great. Uh, yes, absolutely. Three is probably much better than seven. Were you thinking, oh, I'm going to pack in my ideas that I was going to put into seven books, I'll just pack them into three and I'll just call them three books. But really in my mind, they'll, they'll still be the seven. No, I, I was, you know, I'd actually sort of sent in a, a synopsis, a very, very rough synopsis of a seven book arc. And um, it was clear that if I was going to cut it to three, a lot of stuff was going to have to go. And, you know, whole whole nations and characters and plot lines just got ri- ripped out by the roots. Um, but, you know, uh, at the time, Marco said, look, why don't we do three and we'll see how it's going, um, see how you're feeling, see how we're feeling, see how the readers are feeling. And if you can, you know, and it looks good, but, we'll, you know, you can write some more in this world. And that's that's definitely where we're headed now. Um, but this story, the story that I'm telling will be closed at the end of three books. But, you know, the, the world is a large place. There's always other stories to tell. So, yeah, it got it got pared down. And honestly, I'm so... Right now, I'm working on the third book, and I'm so, so grateful. Marco, if you ever listen to this, thank you. Just wrestling three into, into submission feels like a good challenge right now. I can't imagine how it feels to have so many characters and plot threads out there that you could fill six books and then have to, to handle the seventh. Um, that might be a challenge to tackle down the road, but right now, three feels like plenty. I hear you. So you pared it down, and so you're yep. holding you're holding in abeyance uh, some of these ideas for the possibility of of continuing the story in, in later volumes, or using them for a completely different story. Um, a different story in the same world, I'd say. I don't want the end of this series to feel oh, it's kind of done, but oh, maybe that guy is still alive. You know that that irritates me at the when it's supposed to be the end of the series. I want to feel like the story is over, and so. I fully intend to finish this story at the end of the third book, but some people will be dead. Some people will be still alive. Maybe it'll be worth following them. Or I'm, I'm also very open to just exploring different corners of the world. And honestly, I, I think it will be fun after this third book to write something that wasn't epic, that was a little bit smaller in scope, that was sort of an adventure tale maybe a little bit leaning more towards swords and sorcery and away from, you know, sort of wor- world begirdling epic stuff. I'd like to try my hand at that for a book or three. So we'll see. Right now, I, I, right now, I, I try not to think about it. I try just to keep my eyes on the road here with the, with the third volume. 
Is it harder, the way I sort of characterized it in the beginning? I mean, you don't have a common uh, language necessarily with the reader to rely on. You're, you're inventing so many, you know, wonderful new things like these, the Ketchel fighting force right. that uses these right. huge birds to fly on. But, you know, it's not just that. It's the whole ethos of, of what this fighting force is and their rules of combat and the way they figure in the context of this universe this world which you know they're like the fiercest fighters out there yeah i think you know it's definitely anyone writing second world fantasy writing in an invented world has an extra burden you know if you're writing a crime novel set in new york in 2012 you can just you can talk about you know the upper west side or central park or whatever and some readers will have been there readers who haven't been there will have seen movies so they have a vague idea about it um and somebody who has somehow never seen any footage of new york can always go look online and just say oh yeah there's new york that's what it looks like whereas if you say oh uh, you know they came over the hill and saw anur that means nothing to, to any reader because you've just invented an ore. You're, you're building it out of whole cloth. That's the empire. That's the empire. That's the right. Yeah. That, like Rome, an is the name of the, of the central city and the empire itself. So you're faced then as, as the builder of the world with, you know, a forking path. You can either create institutions and polities and entities in the world that have different names, but are, basically bear a one-to-one correspondence to things that we recognize. So, you know, the Dothraki in um, Game of Thrones, people say, well, they're just, they're just the Mongols. Um, and I actually don't think that that's right. Um, but they are, kind, they, they are pretty Mongol-like in some ways. And so a reader, as soon as you break that code, you can just sub in the real-world thing that you know for the second-world thing. And that's that's great in one way for a reader because it's way easier. You just say, you know, I was describing a novel to my wife the other day and I was saying, well, these guys are, are just Russian and they're not called Russian. And these guys are, you know, Japanese, but they're not called Japanese. But on the other hand, it seems like if you're going to create a second world fantasy, you can do more than just sub in real world analogs and give them new names. But then that's a lot harder for the author and for the, the reader because the reader can't just say, oh, these guys are Vikings or whatever. It's like, well, they're sort of like Vikings, but uh, they have these cult, these these traditions that aren't at all uh, like that, and they're religious, they're monotheistic instead. You know, so the more you want to really create your own stuff, the the harder you're making it on yourself and the reader. Uh, it's always it's always a bit of a trade off, and you can do both. You know, you can have some things that are a little more recognizable and some things that are less so. I mean, is one of the challenges also not being too pedantic about it? I mean, you don't want to have these long. <laughs> asides where you're going, oh, and the Ketchel fighting force is this and this and this, and the history is this and this and this. I mean, yeah. you have to integrate it in such a way that it that it's arising naturally from, well, from I suppose the the perspective of the protagonist in that particular scene. But which must be hard, though. It's well, it's you know, I'll tell you one thing. It's way easier if you have more than one character in the scene. At the beginning of the Emperor's Blades, you have Caden all by himself, um, kind of running around in the mountains looking for this goat. And then he finds the slaughtered goat, and he's, he can't figure out who slaughtered it. But the challenge of writing those chapters was that he doesn't have anyone to talk to. So you can't see what the monks are like through their interactions, because he's not interacting with anyone. Um, and you can't see what they're like through their speech patterns, because he's not speaking to anyone. And it's also even really hard 
to show what the main character is like because no one's looking at him and he's unlikely to be thinking about himself. He does, he's not probably going to think, Caden was running through the peaks. Caden was 17 and tall. For you, know, that's, you have to find a way to include all that information. Exactly. It's a lot easier if you have a, a group of people. So you know, the first Valon chapters, they're on the deck of this ship and they're trying to figure out who murdered the sailors. And at least there, you can show a, a half dozen different Ketrol. And um, so the, the reader gets a, an overview of like, oh, that guy's kind of like that. And they're sort of like this. And she's like that. And you can see how they talk and see how they act and see what they do. So you can get a lot of that world building in more organically. It's easier to get it in organically, let's say. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you about the, since you've mentioned Caden and Valen, who are the brothers, they are the uh, princes or the children of the slain emperor. Sure. And they also have a sister. Do you say her name, Adair? I do, yep. So you have the three of them, and I thought it was an interesting choice because, you know, if you have a story hanging around the activities of three siblings, especially three, you know, royal siblings, I think the most common uh, narrative about that usually involves some kind of rivalry or some kind of betrayal, sibling rivalry. And and th- this story really seems to be very much so about their loyalty to each other, which might even be a little surprising because they haven't spent that much time together. Their childhoods have been very separate, each training or experiencing a very different kind of upbringing, Adair as the female in this world, staying closer to the father back in the capital, uh, Valen being trained as a Ketral in this elite fighting force, and then the the heir, Caden, with these monks, and, you know, each in their own world, yet each very, apparently, unless there's some, you know, twist that'll happen in a later book, you know, loyal to each other. And I guess I wanted to explore that. I thought it was a really interesting choice. Yeah, it's it's a funny story because it's a family story in which none of the family members really know each other very well. You know, both Valen and Caden were sent away at, at early ages, so they have only childhood memories of Adair. Um, they don't remember their father very well. The mother is barely mentioned in the first book, although she plays a larger role in the second book. Adair, the the only real familial relationship in the story is over when it begins, and that's between Adair and her father. She's they're the only two who are in any kind of proximity, who really know each other, uh, and so it's it, it's an odd tale. They all feel as though they're part of this thing, the Malkinian dynasty. They feel as though they're part of something important and good in the world. They believe in the Anurian Empire and its ability to bring peace and prosperity and stability and justice and all of the things that the proponents of empire are always claiming for their empires. But they they don't have a very good sense of how the others are going about it. And so, you know, Valen thinks, well, I, I, can, I can do my part by um, excelling in this military path. And Adair thinks, well, I'm really the only one who has a handle on the actual running of the empire. Uh, Caden doesn't really even understand his role for a long time. So they're all trying to do their part for the empire and their family. But what that part is um, seems different to each of them. And so there, I think the grounds for conflict are there, but it's not the standard conflict, which is I want to be emperor. No, I want to be emperor. No, I want to be emperor. But a more fundamental question, what is it to be empire? What is the best way to run this thing? Um, they're all going to come at that question from different angles. Mm, okay, that's interesting. That makes a lot of sense because they have, they, you have set up this uh, where they each have 
clearly different strengths and skills and training mm-hmm. and experiences. And and it's not, you know, I don't like, I'm not as interested in stories where it's just, I've, you know, I taught Macbeth for years and I, I don't like that play. Um, and I don't like it because Macbeth's ambition seems to me just so boring. Um, it's so naked. He and his wife just want power, full stop. It's not even clear what they want to do with the power. Um, you know, do they want to have fancy dinner parties or, you know, have a bigger castle or what? They just want the title, the power. And that seems to drive both fantasy and some real world, some real world historical incidents. But I don't get it. It doesn't, that doesn't resonate with me. So I didn't want any of these siblings really desperate for the power just for its own sake. But whatever conflict they'll experience in, in books two and three in particular comes from a difference of opinion over what the empire is and how it ought to run. Well, you do seem to be exploring different notions, even among the population, of what you know mm-hmm. what it means to be a leader. Because another thing that really struck me that I thought was different was that the usual deference you would have expected from the people around, especially the two brothers, uh, mm-hmm. there, there was none, basically. I mean, here... Yeah. here Caden is the heir, the emperor's son, and these monks basically treat him like dirt, you know? I mean, like, you know, if there was a child welfare authority, they would be called in and, you know, he would be taken into protective services. Yeah. Uh, and the same goes true for the Ketral, or I'm, I'm not saying it right. Ketral? Ketral. I say Ketral, yeah. Yeah. Ketral. But I think it's a a fantasy reader to pronounce the words any which way they please. That's what I've done my whole life. <laughs> Well, I believe it's more like you going to a foreign country and you want to learn, you want to pronounce it properly. I always want to have the right accent when I go somewhere. So, right, right. so I consider you the tour guide, the official tour guide and the emperor of this empire. And, and to your right, we see the Ketral, and to the left, we have Anur. Um, don't look over there, and Tar's light might blind you. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, I think I think we are predisposed. It's just, a, you know, there there's an apotheosis of sort of suffering and poverty in fantasy novels. So, you know, generally speaking, uh, in the broad tradition, if somebody is raised sort of uh, poor on a hard scrabble farm in a fantasy novel, they'll probably be a good character. And if they're raised, you know, uh, eating off of silver platters and uh, robed in silk, they're probably going to be evil. And I I was sort of curious about that. Um, In some ways, I think Adair is a little bit... So Adair plays uh, counter to type in that in that way um she's definitely the princess who is raised as a princess but you know caden's upbringing among the monks doesn't really set him up well to be emperor he and he's aware of this and a little bit frustrated by it he can make pots and he can run for a long time but those skills are are for shit when you're trying to govern a massive empire spanning two continents so um not to mention i I kept thinking he must have really low self-esteem because they keep criticizing him for every single thing he does. Like, how's he supposed to have any confidence in the decisions he makes? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, and especially I think that's that's the setup for book two. He's hardened and he's tough. But is he tough in the way that he needs to be to be a good emperor? It's hard, it's hard for me to imagine somebody going from that upbringing to, uh, you know, doing an excellent job at uh, a large scale bureaucracy. He doesn't even really understand how, how ordinary people think and feel because he's been living among the monks for so long and they, and they have beaten out of themselves their own feelings. So, you know, I've tried to put them, I, I've tried to give them all major disadvantages. <laughs> um, 
especially in regard to the roles that they're supposed to fulfill. So that it's not going to be, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that Caden, even at the end of book one, there's no real obvious way for him to just return home gilded in glory. Things are going to be tougher for him. They're going to be tougher for all of them. Right. I mean, not to mention there's a whole, I mean, there's a whole story about who's, who betrayed the father and who's their enemy. And I mean, there's that going on. Absolutely. But you're saying internally too, yeah. he, he is not yeah. necessarily, even though in theory, his, his this, this ascetic life was mm-hmm. training him for, you know, some kind of higher calling, which would be, in his case, being the emperor. And you and there's a specific skills that that he was actually trained for, which is kind of like a, a, an important plot point that I won't just say. Right. But um, which which makes sense. But it does seem like a very narrow skill. It's like an important one. Yes. Yeah. But uh, but one as he, I can see how it might he might be missing some other important. Um, qualities that would make right. him that would be required of a of a fully fully shaped fully formed leader well and as you, you know as you point out there are reasons that the 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 heirs to the empire are always sent to the shin monks it's not just it's not just shitty planning on the part of the emperors they there's a reason that, that it has to happen which is revealed partway through the book but be, because the natural succession is cut short by this plot caden is sort of half-baked as as a future emperor when he's, you know, when he's forced towards the towards the spotlight more directly, so um, you, you know, if he if he had another bunch of years, things would be different. But he doesn't. None of them do. You know, they're all they're all sort of um, thrust forward, unprepared to some to some extent, and that's you know that that's where a lot of the conflict comes from. Right. So I, it's interesting. I mean, so unless so rather than having it be a story about rivalry among the siblings, it's really more an internal. They're sort of rivals with themselves, the the, the best they can be, or, mm-hmm. or the parts of them that you know aren't aren't quite prepared for the roles that they have to take on in this world. I've written, I don't know, maybe I, I wrote a blog post, but I forget where I talked about this idea. But I think there are sort of three fundamental types of tension that can exist in a book. There's there's psychological tension, which is exists internal to a character. There's social tension, which exists between characters and then there's environmental tension which exists between the character or characters in their environment you know so for example if you have a, you know if you're writing a mountaineering story the psychological tension might be one character's fear of heights and then the social tension would be that two characters on the expedition hate each other and then the environmental tension would be that there's you know constant avalanches trying to destroy them and i think stories the stories i like at least combine all three of those and so um you know, I've tried to set it up so that Caden and Valen and Adair are, are, are all facing those things to some degree. Um, and, the, and not only that, but those tensions are compounding each other. They're, the psychological struggles that they face are going to make the social struggles that they face more difficult rather than easier. I want to ask you about some of the mythology. Uh, key to the, to the backstory are these um, Sestream. Mm-hmm. I would say. Is that how you say it? I say, I, I say Cestrium, yeah, Cestrium. Um, I get like a K and an S sound in there. Okay, Cestrium. Yeah, yeah. So these are creatures that are both considered very vicious and horrible and, and the enemies of humans, and they were destroyed by humans in, in what's initially presented as mythology. But then towards the end, it's, the question is raised, well, did they really exist? And if they really existed, how do we know uh, that they are really gone? And right, and so you're sort of exploring. It seems to me this idea of 
well, kind of the stories that we create about our society. Uh, what was mm-hmm. was this religious historical you know figure? Was he a historical figure as well as a sort of mythical figure? You know, was he real? Was he not? And I I just wonder, um, you know, if you wanted to talk about that a little bit. I mean, I think you play with it. There's another scene. You know, there's the high priest of Anur, you know, who is accused of killing mm-hmm. the emperor. And he tries to demonstrate his innocence by showing that he can withstand tremendous heat and that therefore shows he's protected by the goddess of fire and he must be innocent. It's a little like the Salem witch trials. That's what that sort of reminded me of. Are you going to sink or float? But the question is raised, is this a hoax? Is he tricking people or is this something real? And I, I feel like you play with that a lot. You know, is this real? Is this a myth? Is this historical fact? Is this goddess real? Is it not? And yeah. I wonder what you were trying to get at there. Well, I think the interesting thing about mythology, you can ask questions, you can interrogate a mythology very directly and just say, okay, you know, did um, these events happen? Did Odin actually hang from the tree and, and see uh, what he saw? Did, did Jesus turn the water into wine? You can pick your, your ancient story and ask whether it's factual and that's interesting, um, and you can do that in a fantasy novel too. But I think that the place where the rubber really meets the road, at least for me, is how those stories, whether they're histories or mythologies that the characters tell each other, intersect with the characters themselves. So, for instance, it's you know the Malkinians. Um, some of them have these burning irises. Caden has them. Adair has them. Their father has them, and. Um, you know the, the readers will encounter these early on they 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 literally look look as though they're on fire this sort of ever burning unconsumed fire that is their irises and and the malkinians have a story which is that um way back in in sort of prehistoric times the antara the goddess of light and fire you know came down to earth and mated with a human and bore their progenitors um and so that they are they are the descendants of the goddess of fire and that's the story they tell themselves um and that's the story that by and large, everyone in the empire believes, at least to some extent. And what I think is neat is they don't know if it's true, right? They they haven't met Antara, the goddess of fire. They know there's something really strange going on with their eyes. Um, but, you know, the world is filled with strange and wonderful things. So imagine what that does to you as a person. You, you think, oh, gosh, I have these burning eyes and I'm told they're from a goddess, but am I descended from a goddess? And and that uncertainty is at the at the very heart of, of, of their role in the empire and of the empire itself. And more broadly, questions about the Kestream. Uh, did, they, did they really live? Um, were they related to humans? Were they not related to humans? Those have a very direct bearing, especially as the story gets underway, with the way that some of the characters in, in the book itself behave. Um, were the Kestream evil? That's, that's a pretty fundamental question, especially if you think there might still be some of them around. And so I, I think you can ask two interest. You can interrogate these mythologies in a couple interesting ways. One is just to try and get to the to the actual answer, which I I always feel rewarded as a reader of fantasy when you get to know a little bit more of the mythology. But the other is to see the way that the quest for that answer, whether it's successful or not, makes the characters who they are. And so that that's what that's what I really like to explore in these books. There's uncertainty here, and that's going to change change the behavior of the main actors. Those eyes are very distinctive. And I, and it, it does make me wonder how people can treat them so matter-of-factly. I mean, it's very interesting that they do, but when you see Caden with those eyes and yet the monks 
you know, still treat mm-hmm. him like a, like a regular person. And yet, you know, his eyes are on fire. Right. Right. Uh, and it shows something about the monks too. Um, their, their indifference to that um, suggests that they, they might be indifferent to a whole lot of things. Looping back to what you had spoken of earlier, that in creating a, you know, a new world, you can draw upon things that are familiar, but make them a little different. And, you know, I couldn't help but think of some kind of Buddhist enlightenment that they were aspiring to when you, when you talk about, you know, they're meditating, they're clearing their heads. And is that, was Mm -hmm. that part of what you pictured in your, in your mind? Absolutely. And, and, you know, yeah, this does double back on what we were talking about about a little bit earlier. The, The Shin monks are, they pull heavily from Buddhist tradition, which a lot of people have remarked on, but also Taoist tradition. And a lot of the a lot of the expressions that they have, you know, Caden is always thinking of these aphorisms and little training mantras. Those are inspired even more by the Tao Te Ching and uh, other Taoist texts than they are by stuff in Buddhism. But I'm, you know, I'm pulling on both of those traditions, but also trying to, t- to, to turn it one more twist or two more twists so that the, there's something about these monks that's actually a little bit darker than... Um, than both the Buddhist and the Taoist traditions, because what they seem to be trying to do is to turn themselves into something that is not human, or that is only human in a very limited sense. And of course, the Xestream were themselves not human. And so I think that uh, unlike, uh, you know, the, the stereotypical image of the Buddhist monk kind of sitting on the cliffside, meditating, which which doesn't have a whole lot of negative connotations, I think there's something, um, or there should be something a little bit unsettling about the Shin monks, um, like, you know, Buddhism seen in kind of a darker mirror, or Taoism seen in a darker mirror. So, but but that's not to say that I wasn't drawing on those real world analogs in, in all sorts of ways when I was writing them. Well, and, and, you know, it's funny you mentioned, or perhaps not funny, but interesting that you mentioned the um, sort of Taoist aphorisms that you were recreating here because there's also a lot of aphoristic or citation of on the war side the other brother who is learning how to fight uh, he too valen is drawing on and i forget the guy's name but there's some uh, famous warrior whose wisdom is, is constantly being quoted well the first chapter of hendron's tactics is just one sentence assume nothing I I have a lot of history written about Hendren actually that you know this is when I say that I might write more stories in this world or that I probably will you know this is the kind of thing that that my mind goes to I have a lot of history written about Hendren and so I have a, I have a good sense of uh, of who he is and um the kinds of things that he would say he's you know some people say oh he's a little bit like Sun Tzu uh, he I think he's he's more jocular um and a little bit quite a bit more irreverent. And and that's, I think, what puts his, some of his things apart from the, the Shin sayings, which are pretty serious. Um, there's not a lot of jocularity in the Shin sayings. But I like I like having a world, and, you know, Adair more than even Caden and Valen, she is often thinking of, of, of texts, you know, usually historical texts or political treatises. And, you know, I'm a reader. Books are a huge part of my world. And I, I, you know, it would be, I think, a fantasy world in which the fantasy characters also um, have a relationship with either written text or at least stories and wisdom that is passed down. Just it's, it's almost a necessity for me. And do you I mean, when you say you've written a lot about Hed- Hedron, I mean, have you written his book? Do you have all his wisdom written down or 
No, no. No, I haven't. That's a good question. Um, it would be interesting to sit down and write those sort of foundational texts first. But no, I'm still kind of compiling it. And honestly, the way that those sayings come into being is that, you know, Hendren obviously has an uncanny way of saying something that happens to be relevant to Valen at any particular point, right? What Valen remembers is what's relevant. And so that's usually the way they come about. It's Valen will be doing something. And I think this would be a time where he would think back to some kind of uh, where he would need the aid of something from his training, and then you know you 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 sit down for a while and whip up some 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 stuff that Hendren might have said. And so, how do you keep the world consistent when you're writing for you know such an extended? You're you're staying in this world, you know, over the course of three yeah. very deep books. I mean, do you have like a a style sheet or a cheat sheet that's like you know? I mean, because I think it would be very easy to to kind of slip in anachronisms that you don't intend to, or technology, or forms of communication or yeah. just language, you know, that isn't entirely consistent. So I just wonder how you as a writer keep things straight. I have a, a method which is basically madness. It's just uh, hundreds of word documents. So there's word documents for each character. There's word documents for each city. There's word documents for stuff like, you know, Intara's spear, which is the the insanely large tower in the middle of the Dawn Palace. There's a word document for the Dawn Palace. There's maps of the Dawn Palace. And it's all just sort of there on my computer. And then when I think, oh, shit, I don't remember something about the history of that place, I go back and I, I look at it. But it is not at all a foolproof method. And it's not unusual for me to find myself thinking, oh, how long, you know, how long was Rampuri Tan with the Shin monks? Have I committed to an answer on that already? And the Emperor's Blades, that needs to be consistent in the in the second book. And I'll tell you, every time, you know, now now two of the books are set in stone. And in a way, it's wonderful because I don't need to edit them anymore. <laughs> but in a way, it's you you're just building the bars of your own prison. Um, and more than once writing this third book, I've thought, oh, I would love to go back and change that one detail because I could set something up for the third book. But but you can't. Those those first two books are out there. And so you live within the confines of the world that you've created. And that's that can feel like a curse, but I think it's also a blessing. You know, the world gets more solid with each book, and I think you can flesh it out more um, instead of always just making up a new thing. So, And does it, I mean, it's a bit like real the real world. We live with the consequences of our actions. You know, we can't go back and change our own personal histories. Well, I mean, just sometimes it's things that characters have done. You think, oh, you know, gosh, everything that they need to do, that they do from now on needs to be consistent with that. And sometimes it's just, it's just details of the landscape or, or, you know, the geography that you think, oh, it would be way more convenient if this city was a little bit closer to that other city, right? Because then a, a certain type of plot would work that now is just won't. And there are hundreds of things like that, that I, that I've, been running up against in, in book three. So what's the second book called? It's coming out early next year, right? The second book is coming out uh, in mid-January of this coming year, so a few months from now. It's called The Providence of Fire, and uh, you can see the cover. Tor revealed the cover the day that The Emperor's Blades was released, actually, because we had a working manuscript back then. It is different from The Emperor's Blades. It's 100 pages long, longer. Adair gets a much-expanded role uh, she's she gets I think she has the most pages of any of the point of view characters. Um, there's a fourth point of view character, although a relatively minor one. And um, 
if the Emperor's Blades involves a lot of mystery, is, is sort of a mystery novel, especially on Valen's end, uh, and a training novel, and even a little bit of a coming-of-age story, everybody hits the ground running in Providence of Fire. Uh, it's sort of, from the first chapters of all three of the siblings, they are doing something and going somewhere. And so, you, as, a, as a result, you, get to, you as the reader get to see a lot more of the world, and the characters do, too. Um, you know, in book one, there's Anur, where Adair is, and the Bone Mountains, where Caden is, and the Kieran Islands, where Valen is. In book two, I, f- I forget now, I think I counted, but it depends how you count. There are maybe nine different settings, and because they're going places, they're doing things. And so I, I think that uh, that's exciting, that, and it feels different from the first book, which is at least geographically somewhat static. And the thrust is them trying to continue to like unravel a conspiracy against their, their family and their father, like who really killed their father and, and who is uh, trying to undermine their, their, their world and their, their leadership. They are, they are absolutely continuing to try to uh, unravel all that. That's at the heart of the story. But that, that doesn't take place in a peaceful environment. You know, the, the empire is sort of falling apart as a result of, of their father's death. And uh, there are a lot of conflicting forces out there. So it's not as though they can all sort of go home and have tea and have a series of peaceful discussions with a private investigator about who killed their dad. Uh, you know, even just getting home for Valen and Caden is sort of a fraught question. And for Adair, being home is is sort of horrifying, given some of the discoveries she makes in book one. So they they are trying to sort that sort out that central mystery, but there's a lot more happening uh, that they have to grapple with all at the same time that, that, that compounds the difficulty of solving that mystery. And so book three, you're in the middle of writing. So you're still, it's a little open-ended. So, so readers can send their suggestions. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you want somebody to die. You want somebody brought back from the dead. Just let me know. Uh, um, yeah, it's, it's the writing the third book, writing a final book, I think is a real challenge. Um, there are so many series and books and movies that I have loved until the end and then thought, oh, that's what it was. Or, oh, there's just a big explosion or, oh, there's just a big fight. And I, and I am desperate not to recreate that feeling in, in the readers of this series that, oh, okay, it was all just leading up to that. And so I feel like that, um, that little gremlin is just sitting on my shoulder, growling into my ear every day. But uh, you know, rest assured, I have some, I have some, I have some tricks up my sleeve. I'm excited about. So it's just a matter of figuring out how to deploy them. Excellent. Well, something to look forward to. That's wonderful. So people should go out and uh, they should buy the Emperor's Blades right away because pretty soon there's going to be the second book and and surely not too long after that the third book so they so i hope everyone gets started so thanks brian stavely for uh speaking with me on uh, new books in science fiction and fantasy i i really have enjoyed the discussion thanks so much it's been a real pleasure so uh as you can hear i've we've been talking with uh, brian stavely author of the emperor's blades and I am Rob Wolf, your host. Uh, I actually have written a couple books myself, uh, The Alternate Universe and its sequel, The Escape. And so I will take advantage of my platform here to just encourage you to check them out on Amazon. I'll have to say I'm a little embarrassed to be promoting myself. My brother thinks I shouldn't do it. He thinks it's in bad taste. But I guess I don't receive any compensation for hosting this. 
other than the pleasure of speaking with really interesting uh, writers like uh, like Brian Staveley and um, and and other folks who coming up include the editors of Hieroglyph Stories and Visions for a Better Future that um, I expect to be speaking with them in the coming weeks. So uh, please come back for more. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and like us on Facebook and review us, review the show if if you've enjoyed it. And thanks so much for listening.